You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and engaging in spontaneous bouts of friendly kleptomania because it's what my character would do, right? This is season four, episode four. What's your alignment? I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hello, Carrie. Hey, Adam. I love that you used your D&D NPC who's shifty voice. That's, or, the, that's the, whatever. the whatever voice. Yeah. No, no offense to, to folks who have that accent who might be offended by this <laughs> characterization, but it is what Adam brings out when he's playing like a, a certain type of NPC. And that's I think right. that type of character would be, or whatever, I'm going to steal from my co-part part. Wait, what? Co-party members? Co-party co <laughs> members. Because it's what my character would do. I have a new NPC voice that I'm working on, which is Roy Kent from Ted Lasso. Because uh, he's still oh. British, but he's got this real like kind of deep gravelly like yeah. uh, voice. I'm just like, sure, this is my voice and I'm Roy oh, Kent and I'm always so angry. Right. So that's the one I'm kind of, I hate everybody. Um, anyway, so what are, we, what are we doing? What are we doing today? I don't We're know. We're talking about alignment today, alignment. which is a concept I'm going to admit has eluded me and still might continue to elude me. And honestly, for, for uh, I mean, people that have been playing D&D for forever, which does not include me, uh, alignment has always been one of those things that people take or leave in their games. So mm. uh, but we're going to talk about it today because we want to move from the kind of the alignment system in role-playing games and move into uh, talking about kind of what we align our lives to uh, as followers of Jesus. Uh, but to in, in order to get us into that, uh, Carrie, you want to give us our scripture quotation today? Our scripture quotation for this time is from Psalm 1. Happy are they who have not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor lingered in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seats of the scornful. Their delight is in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on his law day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in due season with leaves that do not wither. Everything they do shall prosper. It is not so with the wicked. They are like chaff which the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked shall not stand upright when judgment comes, nor the sinner in the counsel of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is doomed. And our quotation from Nerd Canon comes from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Oh, said Susan, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. There's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking. They're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You were, you were doing a dance there. What, what was that about? That was me shouting yes, um, because <laughs> I love this quotation. It's one of my favorites of all of the Chronicles of Narnia. I chose that because of it, it really does show Aslan's alignment. That he's good, but he isn't safe. And that's that's a way to, to launch into our discussion of, of alignment. Alignment is one of the personality traits in Dungeons and Dragons. And I talked to a friend of mine who's been playing D&D since the 1970s. And um, he, he mentioned that alignment has been in the role in role playing games for forever. Uh, 
or the earliest original D&D from 1974 included alignment, but it only had three alignments. It had lawful, chaotic, and neutral. It didn't okay. have the grid system that we know the of good, from, good from evil fifth, fifth edition. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, in the 1977 uh, advanced Dungeons and Dragons, uh, it moved to that two axis system where we have, which is what we also have in fifth edition, where there is an axis uh, between good and evil and an axis between law and chaos. Mm-hmm. So you get a grid of like nine, yeah, nine, three by three end. grid. Um, and then a couple of other editions of D&D have had slightly different uh, alignment systems. D&D fourth edition didn't have the nine. They only had five. Uh, but uh, fifth hmm. edition, which is what um, most folks play now because it's the, the current edition released in 2014, brought us back to that nine alignment scheme from the 1977 Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And I like the way that the player's handbook uh, from fifth edition um, talks about alignment. Uh, they, they talk about those two different axes. Uh, please open up your PHB to page 122. Well, I am because <laughs> in preparation for this episode, I pulled out my PHB and I was looking in the character creation part when they have the Bruner, the dwarf oh, that yeah, they yeah, like yeah. walk you through the creation of and alignment isn't mentioned there. So I was thinking, Oh, it's actually not in fifth edition, but you're right. It's in page. It's on page 122 in the personality and background section, which I think is an interesting kind of relegation that it's not like background. It's not integral to the mechanics of the character in the way that what 5e called race or um, your class would be, which are put up front in the book. This is this is a quotation from the book. Alignment is a combination of two factors. One identifies morality, good, evil, or neutral, and the other describes attitudes towards society and order, lawful, chaotic, or neutral. Thus, nine distinct alignments define the possible combinations. I find it kind of fascinating that that we have our disposition towards the world based on morality and how we identify with mm. society. I think that's that's actually kind of an, an interesting concept uh, to to explore a little bit, uh, because when we think of good and evil, we also pair it with law and chaos, and so we see that it is possible to be both lawful and evil, mm-hmm. and it is possible to be chaotic and good. That they don't that they it's not like chaos chaos is evil and and law is good it, that's not how it works it there you can combine like a punnett square you can combine uh, <laughs> ninth level by ninth, ninth level ninth, ninth grade, grade biology, biology. <laughs> you can combine all of them so that you have lawful good neutral good chaotic good lawful neutral neutral um, <sighs> chaotic neutral lawful evil neutral evil chaotic evil and then it's up to the the player to choose what their alignment will be and then to make the choices that their character makes uh based in part on their alignment and and, and that's a way i think for people who who are playing a character that might be very different from who they themselves are to get mm-hmm. into the character and to role play the character in a different way Right. It creates an internal consistency of of, uh, actions, of choices, of conversations and of perspectives on the world that if you are playing someone who's not just you would help create that consistency. I'm curious about this because it seems like the morality is defined internally 
but the order is defined by the society around it. Like who's saying what is evil or what is good? Is D&D proposing that there is a general, like a, a morality of good is what benefits most people or how are we defining good? And I think their descriptions kind of deviate from that. Which is why I think alignment is a little bit sticky and a little bit amorphous because I, I you do have to have, in order to understand alignment within a given world, you have to understand what the value systems of that world are. Right. Like you could be in a, let's say a, some kind of fantasy world that's t- a totalitarian regime that believes in the subjugation of a few for the benefits of the many. I'm thinking back to our scapegoating episode and um, let's say that's that's the society that you're working in. So what is lawful is also considered good by those in that society, but someone operating outside that society would be considered by the society to be evil if they're working to undermine that system. But I, as an outsider, might think is good. This is like hardcore ethics. You did. A, yeah, this is interesting. We're kind of doing a backdoor ethics <laughs> episode here. The trolley about, question. Talking about alignment. Yeah. If you had to sacrifice. There are in D&D worlds, like the officially published worlds, there are system, like the pantheons of gods. And those gods mm. are, they do align with the various alignments. So there are quote unquote good and lawful gods there are evil and chaotic gods and those and those are their very essence like in in you know our religion of christianity we would say that god is good chaotic good or lawful see that's that well Mm. there now we have to figure out are we talking about god's (laughs) law are we talking about human law that we place upon god as a warrant for what that law might be uh, That's be. what confuses me. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so l- let me go back to my friend, my friend Mark, who who All sent right. me this stuff from early editions, and this is what he said. Uh, he said earlier earlier today. Uh, I thought this was great. He says alignment has also been both underplayed and overplayed by groups since the beginning. When I was a kid, it was common for the paladin in the party to be more to be more squeaky clean than Superman, but still lay waste to entire clans of goblins because they're evil. And mm-hmm. you had to watch the, the thief in the party because they would steal from everyone else. Because that's what we, my character would do. Right? Yeah. So, Whatever. Uh, <laughs> so sorry. And, and, and so when we think about, okay, so the paladin is lawful good, but then just committed genocide against the goblins. Is that is that good? Well, they were evil mm-hmm. creatures. Well, did they just did they deserve to die? Now we're into again, yeah, we're talking ethics morality. here and morality. And and so I think alignment is is interesting because it does make if a character is playing a particular alignment, it can make them pause and go, huh, what what would my character do here? Mm-hmm. Which I think is good because it might that might help train them to think in their own life, huh? What should I do in this situation? What is guiding me? Right. What's what's the alignment that I'm following as a person? And we're going to get back to that a little bit later. Yes, that was uh, a little we, bit. Yeah, you jumped ahead. I there. jumped ahead there. Oh, man. Um, that never happens, never happens ever, ever on this podcast uh, so by we, me. We had Psalm 1 was our, our scripture quote today. And I just wanted to read a, a quick word from uh, a New Cambridge Bible commentary by Walter Brueggemann and William H. Bellinger Jr. Uh, talking about Psalm 1. Um Psalm 1 is about the most basic decision of how to live. 
the poem crafts a world of contrasts in order to encourage its readers to live in the fruitful way of the righteous rather than the barren way of the wicked. Does that mm. sound like alignment to you? Sounds like it does. It sounds like there's no neutral in Psalm 1 either. The wisdom teacher in Psalm 1 operates from the belief that God created a moral order to life and has observed that openness to divine instruction brings the possibility for full living. What directs life, how people live, matters. Uh, So Psalm 1 asserts that our arbiter of alignment is God and God's divine instruction. So following the way of God, lawful, would bring you on the side of good. Or following the way of the good God uh, would 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 make you disposed to follow God's instruction. And then I guess in our in our nerd quotation, right? They're talking about Aslan, who is not explicitly by C.S. Lewis intended to be a Jesus figure, and yet he obviously is an authorial intent. Doesn't really matter when it comes down to it. Um Aslan is kind of like Jesus. That's my that's my two cents there. And talking about this creature that that is a lion, a great the great lion, the king, that he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. So he's not tame, but he is the king. And what that means, I guess, about his alignment is perhaps that Aslan would be a more chaotic good than a lawful good. <laughs> Or am I still missing alignment? I'm <laughs> well, why don't we um, why don't we look at some examples, and then okay. it, it, it might help. Uh, I think, and I think honestly, that's the best way to teach ethics. I think if you talk about ethics in a vacuum, you know, it doesn't right. it doesn't help at all. But if you start talking through problems and actually yep. like the trolley problem you're talking about, yeah, it, once you start actually, and then you add uh, variables to it, you can really start to hone in on what your own ethical stances are. And what your morality is. Kind of like a, you know it when you see it. Like you'll know a chaotic neutral when you see him, or you'll know a lawful good when you when you think about a character. I, I want to start with Star Wars because I think that Emperor Palpatine is the best example that I can come up with that is lawful evil. Mm. Dictators are always lawful evil. Because they follow a strict code, right? Of a certain way of doing things, but they are harming a lot of people. Yeah, they are evil. Uh, They they are using their laws to perpetuate evil. All right. Got it. And that's the emperor. I was thinking about examples in the real world. uh, And I was thinking about your example earlier of the 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 caste society, the caste based society, um, Mm -hmm. where we might want to find a chaotic good uh, um, person because a lawful good person might be complicit within that that unjust society. And I was thinking to the civil rights movement and I thought of um, politicians in the South during the era of Jim Crow, or I thought, I thought about Bull Connor, the police chief of Birmingham who turned the fire hoses and the dogs on protesters right. during the civil rights movement. That would be an example of lawful evil because they do have laws that are on the books but they're using them to discriminate and and oppress people. And so would civil disobedience be chaotic good in that scenario? Like uh, protesters, or I guess it would depend on how the protests were organized. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, concept because, yeah, when we think about chaos and order um, or chaos and law, uh, chaos can mean a, a disregard for law or an upending. Mm-hmm. You can kind of look at it either way. So I think... Um, nonviolent protest had its own 
moral code to it that which said, would make it more lawful which would make it lawful within its own right uh you know um <laughs> its you own think? framework its own framework <laughs> it would be considered lawful good but from the framework of the wider society civil disobedience would be seen as chaotic and also though as evil by those who were following the unjust laws that's what i was saying about like who determines what the good versus evil is the morality which is why in dungeons and dragons uh alignment is tends to be based on uh deities uh who stand outside of those societies so it's really it is kind of complicated it is complicated, but but we we love star wars on this podcast so walk us walk us through a couple of star wars characters which i think that in terms of alignment sheets alignment charts star wars is the one i am most familiar with or that's most popular if you were to look it up on the internet so so i didn't look any of these up i just sort of you know, did did my own. Uh, I didn't make a whole grid, but uh, I thought of Han Solo. He is chaotic neutral mm-hmm. uh, because at least at the beginning of A New Hope, he's just in it for himself. He's not bad. He's not good. He's just in it for himself. He doesn't seem to have a very strict code of conduct except do what benefits me and my buddy. You know, 17,000. These guys must really be desperate. Right. If he had known, well, we've got to go, you know, save the galaxy. He still would have charged them. Yeah, maybe even more. (laughs) Yeah, right. Probably Uh, more money. I think that Luke, uh, again, at the beginning of Star Wars, would be considered neutral good. Mm -hmm. um, Because first, uh, he says, I don't like the Empire, I hate it. But there's nothing I can do about that right now. Mm, So he's not willing to work outside the system nor within it. Not at the beginning of the story, at least. Right. And he, But he's a generally good character. He's not... He's not harming people. He's not. He, so Luke could also be considered maybe a true neutral character as well. Um, and as the D&D handbook says, uh, that alignment is of those who prefer to steer clear of moral questions and don't take sides. Doing what seems best at the time. That's a neutral character. Um, I think the Mandalorian is lawful neutral. Uh, because, again, the Mandalorian mm-hmm. has a very strict code. This is the way. This is the way. I mean, it's so strict because we find out that he was raised in a cult of uh, a certain sect of Mandalorians who never take their helmets off, um, which we know is kind of silly uh, if we've ever very, seen anything else with Mandalorians, with Mandalorians in it. Um, the lawful neutral characters, uh, uh, says the player's handbook, act in accordance with law, tradition, or personal codes. And that's it. And that's their whole baseline mm-hmm. for what they're doing. Would that be in contrast to Alea, who would be a more lawful good? That she is working with a strict set of codes from within society as a politician, at least in the beginning of the at, of at the, the beginning of the story. That's an interesting. I think Leia is an interesting character because she is seems to be at once working with the rebellion and also trying mm. to change the system from within. Oh, um, yes. Good right? point. It's kind of it's she's playing both sides. And we learn in Rebels that she was part of the rebellion a couple of years even before A New Hope. And she was still part of the Senate. Yes. Uh, so so she, yeah. she kind of moves between chaos law and, and, law and chaos there. Law yeah. and chaos, but always, but good. Yeah, because chaotic good characters act as their conscience direct with little regard for what others expect, says the player. This is like your book. classic Robin Hood, right? Like working outside, you know, steal from the rich, give to the poor. And I think that Robin Hood might have been the original example that D&D gave for why we need to have a, a much more uh, robust alignment system than just you know law and chaos and neutrality oh, because yeah. robin hood is a good character but is not lawful mm-hmm. based on the laws of of prince john 
which are evil laws. Got it. <laughs> so that's good. Mm. Yeah. I do. I did try to come up with a couple of Harry Potter uh, ideas here. So, so what do you, what do you think about the ones I've got there in my notes? Do you, do you see that as. I, I do think umbrage as lawful evil is a hundred percent spot on Voldemort chaotic evil. I think he institutes aspects of chaos, but he does have a very strict code of conduct that he hmm. follows. Okay, so 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 maybe we can uh, debate Voldemort a little bit here. The player's yeah. handbook says chaotic evil creatures act with arbitrary violence spurred by their greed, hatred, or bloodlust. So basically, mm. the idea of chaotic evil is is its arbitrariness. It's just evil for evil's sake, which honestly makes for some really um, one dimensional bad guys. Chaotic evil bad guys are not that interesting. Right, because you don't want to understand. Part of I think what's interesting about Harry Potter is learning. Voldemort's backstory and how he got there and the development of the system that he follows versus someone who's just randomly evil, like maybe a Fenrir Greyback is, ah, is chaotic okay. evil. Mm-hmm. Just but but even he follows a code. I don't know. I'm still very confused <laughs> by alignment. Dang it. <laughs> I thought I'd get it. All right. Main characters. Yeah, the main characters. Yeah. I thought that they were one of each, actually, of the good alignments. Yeah. I think that Hermione is lawful good. I think Ron is neutral good, and I think Harry is chaotic good. Right. Hermione follows the rules more or she part of her her character arc is moving away from lawfulness into neutral or chaos because, you know, we could we could die or worse be expelled is kind of her M.O. in the beginning. But then in the book seven, when they go steal food, she still pays for it. She does. Oh, bless her. (laughs) Um, Harry does act entirely led by his conscience. That is, I think I see that um, very much working in that way um, with little regard for what others expect. It's coming from the PHB. I think Ron's a pretty good neutral good character because the PHB says neutral good folk do the best they can to help others according to their needs. And Ron is never really presented as such a, like a deep thinker on, on the ethics of it. He just mm-hmm. generally does what's right. Right. And he's, he also is within the society in a lot of ways and sort of learns how to step outside of it, which we've discussed on the podcast before. And that, that is maybe a, a shift for him into more of a chaotic good in some ways. In um, stories that have characters that really do change over time, that actually have character development, we could actually map character development based on alignment change. And it is possible for characters in D&D to change their alignment. And I think that's what maybe a more helpful way, rather than alignment being a static thing that you put on your character sheet on session zero and stick with, which is maybe is where I'm getting stuck, seeing it as this fluid, ever-shifting possibility of moving within the different uh, axes, I think makes it more compelling and useful, um, not just for storytelling, but also for our lives. And it's also one of the pro- the reasons that it, that the way that Dungeons and Dragons looks at alignment is problematic because it assigns alignment tendencies to races. Which is one of the problems with with the race system in general, assigning morality characteristics to something that you're born to, not not a culture. And that's the problem is that in Dungeons and Dragons, race gets conflated with culture. Alignment is one is 100% based on the, that individual, whatever society that they're in, um, but it has nothing to do with the type of creature they are. Now, right. they might Although- grow up in a society or a culture that tends towards one or the other, but the actual biology of the person 
is not going to predispose them one to another, unless you're in a really heavy, like D and D world where it's like, no orcs were born from this evil God who is, you know, Grimush. which, which even, even Dungeons and Dragons has been distancing themselves from mm-hmm. that way of describing it because they recognize the, um, the roots in, uh, racial injustice in the w- real world, um, have, have bled into the way Dungeons and Dragons is set up. It goes back to the question of the lawful good paladin slaughtering the goblins or um, my, one of my, the character I created for a solo campaign with my husband as DM is a lawful good, uh, what's she called? Lawful good cleric. And she was all excited about killing the orcs, which she believed were inherently evil until my husband dropped in like a poem. One of the orcs had a, a poem in his pocket. Ah. It was not very good. It was about a death balloon, so he aka must die. A, a beholder. He's a bad poet. No, it caused her to have like a, a moment of crisis where she was wondering if she was really doing the right thing because she had been taught that the orcs were evil and they were trying to bring about chaos and disorder, but suddenly, and that they were soulless, um, non-thinking creatures. But she found this very, very elementary poem about a balloon full of death um, in its pocket, and that which he just dropped in for flavor. Um, uh-huh. My, my dear husband did. And suddenly it like upended her entire world. Do you think that move, move, move for alignment uh, of, you know, uh, of character development is really interesting. And I was thinking about the Marvel cinematic universe with this, because a lot of the main characters there, I think start with one alignment and then move. And Captain America, I think mm. is the best example of this because of the way the society shifts underneath him that Captain America begins lawful good. He is the lawfulest, mm-hmm. goodest of all of the lawful good people. <laughs> um, but during the Winter Soldier, the second Captain America movie, when he recognizes that Hydra has infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. and oh, yeah, um, yep. want to send these three helicarriers into the air to preemptively kill all the people who might be bad someday, he changes his, I think his alignment change his alignment of, of being this lawful good character does not change in the sense that he himself does not change, but the society has changed around him and that makes him embrace chaos in order to Got it. So now he's considered back. a chaotic good. I would consider him a chaotic good character within that. Again, it, it has to do with the framework, right? That you've been talking uh-huh. about. Whereas yep. Tony Stark begins, I think, true neutral. Absolutely. Uh, just a, just a straight up neutral uh, the alignment of those who prefer to steer clear of moral questions and don't take sides. I'm just going to sell my weapons to whoever mm-hmm. and they can use them to do whatever after I sell them. It doesn't matter. It's not my responsibility. But he he moves, actually, I think through a few alignments, uh, eventually m- moves to lawful good within the uh, very order-based side of, of lawful good in that he wants to have that suit of armor that that surrounds the world. Uh, because mm-hmm. he's trying to protect the world. And um, and that's why he and Steve Rogers have a, a tiff during Captain America's Civil War. Because Is that what we're Steve, calling it? A tiff? tiff? A tiff? I don't know. They bash each other in a little bit. I, yeah, I, don't, bit. I don't love Civil War because of that. I think that if they just sat down and have an interesting conversation, they might be able to solve their differences. Um, I would prefer that movie, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I think that he moves very much towards the lawful side, which I think... Um, takes his goodness and, and, uh, dampens it, um, Mm -hmm. somewhat. Uh, and then he comes back a little bit more as we get closer to his sacrificial end and end game. But the reason that he and 
Cap have a fight is that they both think of themselves as good. And that's where alignment as this kind of arbitrary con it's a it's a construct. Um, mm-hmm. it's not you know, like a, a law of physics. It's something that we've kind of thought up and applied to very complicated real life or fantasy situations. Um, gets gets confusing because I think people often think they are doing good. And the question is when those two ways of doing good come into conflict, like in civil war, mm-hmm. who is actually right. And maybe there isn't a precise right. And then you have a movie. Right. Uh, and, and I guess that maybe that will uh, allow us to move into our, uh, a little bit past the alignment system of Dungeons and Dragons and talk about the way we align ourselves. Uh, mm. If we aren't going to uh, match one of these nine boxes in Dungeons and Dragons, what are the signposts of our alignment? And what framework do we follow that gives us a consistency of action, of thought, of way of moving through the world? Um, I was thinking about uh, frameworks that we could apply from the Bible and mm. uh, and even ones that... Um, you don't have to be Christian to apply specifically the golden rule, which we find mm-hmm. in all major religions do to others as you would have them do to you as Luke, as Jesus says in Luke six, right. That would be a moral framework that would be an alignment. So I, I go to a couple other places. I go to the great commandment, um, which, which is Jesus's summary of the law. Yeah. So that's um, when asked what, what is the most important law? The first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Which summarizes a whole swath of scripture in two sentences. Well done, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No kidding. It's like Cliff's Notes of the Bible. Here it is oh, yeah. in two yep, verses. Go for it. Um, so love God and love your neighbor. In other words, love being the foundation of our existence, love being the motivating force for our decision-making, um, which then link, link, uh, brings us into, say, 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, the motivation of love matters more than how good a speaker you are or how uh, having mm-hmm. prophetic powers or having enough faith to remove mountains. If you're not motivated by love, then you, then you have nothing, um, mm-hmm. which is, goes back to the great commandment um, about loving your neighbor as yourself. Letting that be the foundation upon which all of these other things spring. So speaking in the tongues of mortals and angels or having prophetic powers or having faith all springs from that foundation of love. And without that love, that caring, that um, understanding and knowledge of other people, that all of those are empty. Yeah, so love would be the alignment. Love mm. is your alignment. Yeah. Um, and at least within the framework we're talking about in this episode. And the last one I came up with was the famous uh, phrase from Micah 6. Mm. Um, God has told you, immortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That sounds to me like a wonderful statement of alignment. Here's what good looks like. This is what good looks like. And so Micah's context for goodness has to do with what God has told him, the prophet, to do. Justice, kindness, and walking humbly with God. So we have justice, kindness, and humility. 
This also makes me think of, is it Psalm 85 of, of mercy and truth meeting together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other, trying to explain the way of the Lord, the alignment that we are meant to follow. So much of the Old Testament, the first Testament, the Hebrew Bible is about justice and righteousness, not just just actions and righteous relationships, all things in balance, our laws being you know, just and uh, in a way that does not oppress people, that does not harm people, and our relationships not being exploitative and all of that in balance together. And that's what the way, the, the path of God is so much throughout all the prophets are, you know, a lot of them talk about that balance of justice and righteousness mm -hmm. and that being the way, the alignment that they are, that people following the Bible are meant to follow and explaining our alignment as Christians, as Jesus followers, as doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with our God, or as righteousness and mercy and, and justice and peace makes us look beyond ourselves into our community because so much of the Bible is not just a bunch of random individual people and their relationship with God. It's about the community and the fabric of the world essentially. And that God's hope for the, and dream for the world is reconciliation, not just between each individual and God, but between individuals and each other and even us and all of creation. But that is the ultimate kind of goal of, or dream of God. So on our Ask Us Anything, uh, we have a question from Jamie. What skills, habits, or perspectives have uh, our nerdy interests and fandoms helped us cultivate? And how have those enriched our experience of faith as Christians? It's like coming from within the systems themselves or just engaging with them. I, th I think you could answer it either way, probably. I'll, I'll answer it the latter way and just saying that, as I think I've talked about on the podcast before, the process of preparing, preparing for the podcast, but then also it, reading and watching and playing nerdy things trains my eye to look for God in everything. That process of theological reflection that I think can be so missing if we bifurcate our lives into our church faith lives and the rest of our lives engaging in fandoms and nerdy things blends the two for me in a way that hones that practice, which I think is something that we are good at when we are little and then we are trained out of, and I need to train myself back into it. So I can watch a really silly movie and be aware of the work of God in that, even that film. What about you? I a hundred percent identify with what you were just saying, Carrie. So I don't want to add too much more. Uh, all I'll say is one of the nice things about being a nerd is that you get to really just take joy in things that you love and not be ashamed for it and not, mm -hmm. and not really, um, you know, not have to care about what other people think about it. And I think that as a, as a person of faith, especially in a world that is becoming more and more secular, I don't need to feel ashamed of living my life from a, a place of faith. Uh, and so I'm a, fandom. you know, I'm a nerd. Yeah. I'm a nerd for Jesus there. I said it actually my book, digital disciple, it's uh, original title was God's nerd. Oh, we are, we are nerds for God. We stand God. We stand God. Is that an, <laughs> is that an appropriate gracious. use of that word? I don't stand. know. 
Let's talk Harry Potter. On our book club this episode, we are reading chapters 15 through 18 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Here's a quick recap. Chapter 15, The Goblin's Revenge. It's unsafe to stay in one place for very long, so the trio begins a wearying journey around the countryside, racking their brains to find the next Horcrux. Food is scarce, and each of them takes a turn wearing the locket, which is like having your own personal Dementor hanging about your neck. One night, they overhear a conversation from an unlikely group, several Muggleborns and two goblins. This, along with a follow-up conversation with the portrait of former Headmaster Phineas Nigellus, provides several important doses of news. The Sword of Gryffindor stashed in Lestrange's vault in Gringotts is actually a fake. The real sword is who knows where. And most importantly, it has been used to destroy a Horcrux before. As Harry and Hermione marvel at the implications of this, Ron storms off in a hangry, frustrated strop, disapparating into the night. Chapter 16, Godric's Hollow. In the shock of Ron's departure, Harry and Hermione limp on, grieving in their own way. Harry's anger flashes between Ron and Dumbledore, fading into self-recriminations as he ponders their seemingly hopeless quest. The duo decide that the next step should be Godric's Hollow on the chance the sword is there. Heavily disguised, they arrive on what happens to be Christmas Eve and make their way to the graveyard filled with old wizarding families, including Dumbledore's. Hermione finds an old grave for the Peveril family with that same strange mark, Grindelwald's mark, which she had also seen in the book Dumbledore left her. Finally, they find the graves of Lily and James Potter marked with the words, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Empty words, Harry thinks, as he contemplates the parents he never knew and the life he never had. Chapter 17, Bethilda's Secret. Departing the graveyard, Harry and Hermione find the ruins of the old Potter house with a sign covered in magical graffiti, wishing him well and good luck. Behind them, a figure waits. It's the old historian, Bethilda Bagshot, and she leads them to her decrepit home. The duo is convinced she must have the Sword of Gryffindor for them, but all Harry finds is a photo of the merry-faced thief from Voldemort's mind. Bethilda is strange and silent, at least until she gets Harry alone. With an impending sense of dread, Harry feels Voldemort's joy along with the Locket Horcrux's eagerness. Then the body of Bathilda collapses, leaving the Snake Nagini in her place, focused on holding Harry in the house. Hermione leaps to the rescue, and the two apparate out the window just as Voldemort arrives. Harry falls into a vision, a memory of Halloween 16 years ago, when James and Lily were killed. He wakes up in pain in the tent to find an unnerved Hermione and his broken wand severed in their chaotic escape. Chapter 18, The Life and Lies of Dumbledore. Harry and Hermione begin reading Skeeter's biography of Dumbledore and the picture of the strong, wise, and caring headmaster unravels, from his secretive family life and alleged squib sister Ariana, to his friendship with the well-known dark wizard Grindelwald, Harry finds out more from the pages of Rita's book than hours of conversation with Dumbledore himself. Angry and disillusioned, Harry grapples with the realization that the man who asked everything of him had been so unwilling to share any of himself with Harry. This might be a silly question uh, to start this discussion with, but are wizards Christian? Oh boy, I wondered that too from the moment he gouges across into the bark of a tree to bury the eye of Alistair Moody. And then obviously the scripture quotations in the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, fan fiction has explored this, that some of them are like nominally Christian, like a lot of people in England, like are C of E members, but maybe not Christians. Mm-hmm. And then some fan fictions are like, no, they're all just like pagan druids and they celebrate yeah. Sowen and Imbolc and other pagan holidays. celebrate Christmas and Easter. 
at Hogwarts. They do, but is that more of like a cultural a secular thing? Secular thing, yeah. A it cultural is, it, thing. I mean, Christmas at Hogwarts is very secular. There's no, there's no. I mean, that's true. Jesus. That's true. There's no Jesus. There's just there's Christmas no trees and crackers. They don't have a chaplain at Hogwarts, nor support, you know, mental health oh, support, man, which I think I they all need. Job to be. That's what I dress up as every year for Halloween. It's my collar, my cloak. I have got a hat and a Hufflepuff scarf, and I dress up as the chaplain of Hogwarts. Also, shout out to Patricia Lyons, who is the actual chaplain of Hogwarts. She writes a lot of stuff about faith in Harry Potter. Yeah, so they're in the graveyard, and uh, there's two scripture quotations from 1 Corinthians 15 and from Matthew 6. Is J.K. Rowling a Christian? Is she a person of faith? Do we know? I don't know much about her personally. I believe she is. She has spoken about the inclusion of of these two scripture quotations as kind of like showing her hand just a little bit. Okay. I was wondering if these quotations were things that she would have been able to call up or if she went, I want a good quotation for this grave and just mm. went looking for something because they seem pretty intentional. And yet 1 Corinthians 15 is an entire chapter about resurrection. And it's not as, as Harry wonders, a death eater thing. Hermione, Hermione, who I assume was probably raised vaguely Christian as a, you know, as a muggle in, in England, as a muggle in, in England. Why would that, so she explains it, it is about living after death. And then Harry thinks those are empty words because they are dead. He is alive. What is it all for? So I wonder, you know, why, why did J.K. Rowling choose those words? Why, whoever, why would whoever chose those words for the gravestone put them there for such a young couple who were killed tragically? So maybe we look at it from within the, in the world, not from the author's intent, but mm. who, 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 who chose this for their grave? You know, yeah. cause we, we assume that Harry doesn't have any grandparents because they would have been in line before Sirius probably to. Fleamont and Eugenia Potter died before the stories begin <laughs> of that really elderly their wizards. Are those yes. really their names? <laughs> you are awesome. <laughs> and, and the, I mean. Oh my gosh. Yeah. See, this is, see, I've read Harry Potter a lot, but I have no, I know nothing about anything beyond what's in the text itself. <laughs> so James had two elderly wizarding parents and okay. Lily's, Lily's parents. I guess that is surprising to me that they would predecease Lily that, you know, who died so young. It would make sense that it would be Dumbledore because they're buried so close to his own mother and sister. And he was kind of in charge and there was another scripture quotation on their grave, where your treasure is, mm -hmm. there your heart will be also. Which which Harry assumes within the story was chosen by Dumbledore as the eldest. So it wouldn't have been Aberforth. It would have been Albus, he thinks, he's assuming. Um, but I do think that that, I think the Potter quote is kind of baffling and a little unsettling. But the one for D the Dumbledore family is so touching because Dumbledore believes love is the most powerful magic. Love transcends time, space, death, everything. So having lost his mother to a tragic accident because of his sister's tragic um, repression of her own magic, and then to lose her so violently in such a moment of chaos and uncertainty that really, you know, his treasure is where his heart is, which is where he, you know, his family, his love. That's what he sees in the mirror of Erised, we assume, is not him holding socks. It's him with his family whole and restored. Oh, wow. His true yeah. treasure is love. So I see that making more sense. I was really horrified. This is the first chapter that ever gives the dates on James and Lily's death. And you realize they are 21. 
They are super young. They were out of school for two or three years. I, I wonder about the, you know, I think you're probably right. It's more of the secularized Christianity of England, you know, where the crown is the head of the church, uh, nominally at the head of the church and so forth. Um, but I think it's interesting, though, that we do get act, literal scripture quotations in these chapter. Yeah, well, and I think that they kind of, in their own way, form a lot of the, the the main thesis of the Harry Potter books, that death is not the end. Um, Harry gets so much help from kind of beyond the grave from his parents, although in this moment, he's he's wondering at what it was all for and that they don't have any sense that he is near. We learn later in the when he uses the resurrection stone in the in the forest um, in the forest again, chapter, he's surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses by the, the three, three of the four marauders and his mother that they do know there is some in the Harry Potter world, a life after death. And that love is ultimately what our treasure should be and where our orientation is. I was thinking about in chapter 15, um, the daily prophet and the quibbler have sort of switched places for veracity. Oh yeah. Uh, that's an interesting. Um, and I also like that Snape's punishment of Ginny Neville and Luna uh, for trying to steal the sword, I think is a little bit of a hint of Snape's true allegiance. Right. That he sends them into the forest with yeah, Hagrid. With Hagrid. He knows that that will look like a punishment, but he knows it's not that big a deal. That's a good. And, and realizing that he does have to walk a very thin line in these books. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. And Ron, of course, in the moment is like, Oh, Harry, I've had worse Potter. Like, yeah, who cares yeah. about the forest? But Harry just does looking trust for reasons. In... To... He really is. Yep. He's hangry. Like, I, I use that word in the summary <laughs> yeah, he intentionally. Is. He is. Poor guy is hangry. Get yep. him a Snickers bar. Yeah. Yeah. He wants a sandwich. Um, why can't they multiply? Why can't they like get good food once and then keep multiplying it? That was so confusing. I well, get the Gamps can, law. He can also make flowers appear out of nowhere. And if you can make flowers appear out of nowhere, you should be able to make lettuce appear out of nowhere because it's the same are they thing. Actually, are they actually flowers? Or are they like magical constructs? Oh, I don't know. Now you got me. Um, oh. Is this like, is this like um, in, the holodeck in Star Trek? Where in you can, my favorite fan fiction, The Arithmancer. Oh, here we go again. She, she basically is able to like, Hermione is able to like synthesize what she calls mana, which is like a nutritionally complete. She basically takes dirt and like makes it into like a well-balanced meal and uses that as they go and do their like guerrilla warfare against uh, Voldemort. There you go. <laughs> anyway, I want to talk about the Horcrux that they have to wear. So JK Rowling has talked before about her idea of the Dementors basically being like an embodiment of depression. And that is the feeling that the Muggles kind of have as the, the Dementors are hanging around their town. Harry feels this like icy, cold, shivering feeling. He's unable to produce a Patronus. And it turns out it's because he has the Horcrux, the Voldemort piece of soul around his neck. And as they, they realize that it's not good for one person to wear it constantly, they pass it between themselves for 12 hours. And so whenever Ron is hangry and wearing the Horcrux, he becomes extra problematic. And I think the experience of wearing a Horcrux reminds me in some ways of my own experience with depression, which I've talked about a little bit before in the podcast, and I'm not like, I'm happy to talk about it because the moment Harry takes it off, he says he feels better without really realizing it. He felt lighter without realizing like how clammy his skin had gotten or how tight his stomach was. And that I think for some folks who suffer from mental health um, disorders or, or problems is a similar thing, like the weight builds up slowly 
And when it's lifted on the, you know, on the occasions that like medication or something, some other intervention works, there's a lightness to it that you realize is different than how you had been experiencing the world. So for me, rereading this part of Harry Potter and realizing like the, that it, it, the locket does feel like your own personal dementor um, was just very evocative and, and intriguing for me, I think, to, to be imagining that feeling that Harry had upon taking off the horcrux of this kind of waking up. And my own journey as someone who has successfully had intervention from SSRI drugs for my own depression and realizing like you can feel this liftedness and this weight lifted that is similar to the experiences of the characters in the book. I just found that very meaningful. JK Rowling has talked about it of this kind of like, like kind of shadowy darkness a lot. And that's where a lot of the Dementor imagery comes from is she's someone who struggled a lot with depression over her life. So, so that's interesting then because Umbridge is able to create a Patronus while she's wearing the Horcrux. And is Mm. that because her greatest joy is causing suffering? Or that her alignment is more similar to the <laughs> Maybe, lockets yeah. than the lockets alignment, yeah. But then Harry has a soul piece in him. I mean, yeah, I'm not so sure. It doesn't really yeah. all it doesn't all track perfectly. But uh, anything else on Harry Potter? That last chapter with the life and lives of Albus Dumbledore again continues that theme that you have spoken very eloquently with about your relationship with your grandfather and grief. That grief, in so many ways, is mourning the relationship that has passed, but then also loss of a future relationship. So Harry and Godric's hollow mourning the loss of his parents. And like, I could have gone to school here. I would have brought friends home here. I would have gone on holidays here Um, as in vacations, not going away on vacation. British 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 holidays. Um, But then also grief over the loss of future conversations with Dumbledore and how much that connection would have meant for Harry. Uh, Sidebar, this is my notes trying to figure out how old Dumbledore was from when I was in high school and this book came out. So how how old did you did you come up with? Old. <laughs> I can't read my handwriting. It's terrible. Oh, next time on the podcast, we'll be reading Harry Potter, the Deathly Hallows, chapters 19 through 22. That's the Silver Doe, Zeno, Phileas Lovegood, the Tale of the Three Brothers, and the Deathly Hallows. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians where I occasionally tweet bad memes. We recently had a run of bad Moana memes. I'm sorry. You can find Adam on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Vampire Mist is his newest book. You should buy it and read it. As always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. And now may God, who created order out of chaos and balances everything in God's hands, bless you. May Jesus, who saw clearly through the trappings of an unjust world, guide you. May the Holy Spirit, who rushes like a holy wind through our lives, inspire you into righteous action. Amen. Amen.